the text on your phone so big because <laughs> i'm blind as hell she's like there's only like four words on that screen <laughs> yeah. like, i know really freaking blind like, what do you want me to tell you stop making fun of me welcome to the duke and duchess podcast welcome back my name is chad i'm liz and we are here in episode 66, where we will be talking about, discussing, dissecting, analyzing, tearing apart, putting it back together again, wiping our ass with it and flushing it, chapters 34 <laughs> through 40 of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson, a part of the Stormlight Archive. Damn straight we will. Next up on our next book club, we will be doing chapters 41 through 45 of the same book. It would be really weird if we did like chapters 41 through 45 of like Great Expectations. You never know. I think we should we try We gotta it. keep these listeners on their toes. We should sneak it in there sometime. <laughs> and then Garfield said... <laughs> So what'd you think of this section? I think Mrs. Higglesbottom has been hiding something. It's been a long time since I've read Great Expectations. I have if no that was some I, kind I've of... actually never read Great okay. Expectations. I have no... I, I don't know. No idea what's in Great Expectations. <laughs> I suspect it's words, but I have yet to confirm it. No spoilers for Great <laughs> Expectations. But we should talk about spoilers for this yes. section before... Why don't you lay that on Before them? you ask this one. So, so... Liz has read these books several times. She's a cause veteran. I have never read these books. I am a cause virgin. <laughs> I don't know jack about the Cosmere. So we will remain spoiler free, except for material that comes up to chapter 40 of The Way of Kings. We will discuss things from other books books that might overlap here only if they don't give spoilers away for both this series and other series. So only if they're sort of plot irrelevant. So if you are a Cosmere newbie, no fear. We will not spoil anything for you. If you are not a Cosmere newbie, you can still enjoy hearing Chad make wildly inaccurate predictions hey, <laughs> at I made, times. At times. I made an accurate prediction this time. You did. I was... Very hard to keep a poker face. I made a good you one this time. Spot on. I made a good one. Spot on. All okay, right. so what did you think of this section of chapters? I simultaneously enjoyed it and also thought it was tedious. There's definitely in a a lot of wind up to what's gonna happen next. Yeah, I feel like Kaladin's story could have started like three chapters ago. Like, we could have started three chapters ago. Instead of, you know, starting at chapter one of his story, we could have started at, like, chapter 36. And, you know, through little flashbacks and conversations, we'd have picked up all that shit in the other 10 or 15 chapters we've had leading up to this. 
it's true. There's, I, I don't know if I want to say there's less plot involved with Kaladin because stuff does happen, but it's a lot more internal monologue and trying to describe his headspace. Yeah, there are also, I hesitate to say, although anytime somebody says that, you know that what they're going to say is the exact thing they claim that I don't want to talk about, right? I hesitate to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. It feels like there are chapters where nothing actually happens with him. With Kaladin. With Kaladin. Well, like we got to the end of the chapter and I'm like, I didn't learn any goddamn thing. You know, I feel less like that happens with Shallan, but even with her, I'm starting to get there a little bit. When I go back and I reread them, I'm like, okay, well, I can, I mean, we're getting hints of this and that and some world building. Like, I have enough, I have enough faith to be confident that it's all going to go somewhere, but it's a little bit tedious on a first read. I also remember being in a very similar place in both The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, right around these same parts. That is accurate. I remember you being like, when is he leaving the university? When is he doing this? Yeah, yeah. I remember having this very same conversation. And and do you feel like it was worth it in those books that you've now read the end of it? Having that sort of long, it's like pulling back an arrow in a bow. And you're kind of like, the further you pull it back, sometimes the farther it goes. Do you feel like it paid off in those books? As much as it can pay off two books into a trilogy. Well, that's true. But I think the writing and the character development and the world building there was starting to get so rich. And the and Patrick Rothfuss' writing is so artful. And his characters are so real. I don't feel like the characters here are quite as real However, I feel like I would have told you 400 pages in that I probably didn't feel like the characters in The Name of the Wind were as real, say, as the characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. But, you know, 1,800 pages later, when I got to the end of The Wise Man's Fear, I had a different opinion. So I'm willing to to ride it out and see what happens. Right. It's interesting to watch an author try to balance character development and plot progression because for me, for a character to really feel fleshed out, their story needs to not just progress in an always forward moving trajectory, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah. they need to have some backsliding. They need to have some, they can't just, you know, reach a turning point and then always move forward from there and like, always be on like an upward trajectory. Yeah, listen, you there's, know? there's a reason why we enjoy watching Star Wars, but Joseph Campbell's Man of a Thousand Faces isn't like a super exciting read. Right. <laughs> right? You know, because outlines in and of themselves are not exciting. You know, we need it. We need flesh on the bones, right? Like, so I get that. I feel like... I feel like part of the problem with this book so far is that the world is so alien 
and so diverse that there's a lot of heavy lifting that has to happen from a world building perspective right? to kind of bring you up to speed. I f- and I feel like that's going to pay off, but probably not for another 2,000 pages. So, so it's just sort of tedious. It'll be sooner right? than that. It, you know, it, okay. It'll be sooner All than right. that. I'm just like, I just want to draw some butter, crack open a crab claw, get an enormous fucking shovel, and dig in. <laughs> like like any of these books, I feel like any really good fantasy book, the way that we read it at such a slow pace, it's almost impossible for it not to be frustrating halfway through the book. Yeah, I think you're right there. And again, I think... We're trying to balance having characters develop in in a natural way, in a human-seeming way, and not just like, oh, I'm checking points off of my character development list here, completing these quests and these sub-quests. And you want them to seem like real people. And real people sit in their feelings sometimes. They just sit and stew and stuff. Or they, they go back to old behaviors that you thought that they had overcome that sort of thing but at the same time you need a plot to move forward because you need a story and at the same time you're trying to describe this completely alien landscape and that has a huge impact on the characters you know what we have here it's not just that it's a different planet just to kind of be cool it's the landscape the storms the weather system it impacts the people who live there and it's it's an integral part of them so it's just i don't know it's a neat interaction and it is neat to watch how this author is is tackling that and it is frustrating on your first read through at this point in the book while those bowling pins are still being set up especially when even as slow as i read if we weren't doing this podcast i'd have been done with this book already right so god Bless the listeners who are actually reading along with us. Like, you don't have to do this. <laughs> like, yes, I, you do. Don't listen to Chad. <laughs> I have to. Like, <laughs> I signed up for this. I don't have a choice, right? But you could just go on and finish the book. You know? No, don't listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll never get the the experience of it from the other side. Like, I'll never read a book along with us, obviously, because I'm on the podcast, but <laughs> so I won't know what that experience is like, but but God bless you for sticking it out chapter by chapter. On the other hand, I think this I think our podcast will actually be more enjoyable to people who find it like a year from now. Why so? Who can be like who can be like, oh, I've always wanted to read that book. I can just read it and listen to the podcast and read it and listen at my own pace and not have to wait every week, you know? Should we talk about the book now? (laughs) All right. Chapter 34 is where we're starting out. This chapter is called Stormwall. So Kaladin wakes up after his beating that he just received at the hands of the soldiers for messing up the battle. He wakes up in quite a pickle. More specifically, he is hanging upside down outside of the barracks right before a high storm hits. Syl tells him that Lamoral has been executed and that Kaladin is being left for the storm's judgment. Rock, Teft, and Moash come out to say goodbye. 
Despite the staggering odds against his survival, Kaladin tells his men to come out after the storm and he will be alive. Teft gives him a dun sphere for luck before retreating. As the chapter closes, the storm slams into Kaladin. And that's where the chapter leaves us. <laughs> I that was a that good shit. prediction. You did call it. And it was like the next chapter. It was. I was pretty excited for you. So I've come up with a new like nickname for for Kaladin in my head. I, it doesn't roll quite off the tongue, but uh, I call him Mississippi Madonna. That's <laughs> so perfect, and I don't know why. Because, <laughs> because he's like a redneck, blue-collar guy, well, by circumstance. Right. You know, he's, you know, gets up every day covered in mud and moves bridges around. But he's also a drama queen diva. He's a bit of like, a drama queen, isn't all he? eyes on me. <laughs> Come on, boys. You believe in Stormfather? Because <laughs> I'm going to swing in the wind. And you'll be looking for my eyes. <laughs> Don't hide in your barracks, boys. That was amazing. I didn't write that out. I'm, this is all... <laughs> You're just pulling this right out of your this ass. This is all inspired by Doc, Dr. Pepper. Like, That's <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kaladin is, yeah, he's a little bit of a drama queen. I think we can categorically say that. I don't know that there's anyone that would argue with, with you there. So I, I don't have a lot of notes in, in this because this chapter is very short and it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward kind of kind of what happens. So one thing I thought was interesting from a character standpoint to point out was Kaladin's effect on Bridge 4. We really see that here. Yeah. Not only do Teft and Rock come out and they're sort of have become his lieutenants, but Moash, who is his biggest detractor from the beginning, is one of the three who come out to say goodbye to him. And not only do they come out to say goodbye, but they come out to tell him that they plan to keep the way of life going, the changes that Kaladin initiated, and they're going to teach new members about their way of life, even though they're pretty sure that, you know, they're going to die, but they'll, we'll teach new people and we're going to keep this thing going that you started. And that's pretty remarkable. And we've seen Kaladin developing as a leader. And now we see the fruit of that work that he has put into these men. And I also just thought like the theme of sacrifice really comes out here. We have Kaladin being strung up as an actual sacrifice and then we also see we hear about sadius you know quote unquote sacrificing a fellow light eyes in his execution of lamoral kind of making a show of sacrifice he's sacrificing someone he really probably cares nothing about to make a show at obeying this precept that they have this right of responsibility precept and it's just a nice contrast with what Kaladin is actually being asked to sacrifice and sacrificing himself. The chapter 35 is called A Light by Which to See. Thankfully, we aren't left to wonder what happens after the storm wall hits Kaladin. It's not like, and now Shalon, you know. George R. R. Martin would have put this at the end of book one. Yes, he would have. Absolutely. You had to wait seven years to find out what happened. 
<laughs> we aren't left to wonder here. Uh, what happens is he bounces around like a kite on a string, basically, before he manages to get a hold of an iron ring binding him to the roof. It's real, y'all. There are boulders flying. It's going down in this high storm. And Syl is with him and she's holding out her tiny little hands to hold back the storm. It's adorable. But right before he goes unconscious, Kaladin gets a vision of a giant face that lights up the sphere that's in his hand. When Rock and the other bridgemen come out to check on Kaladin after the storm, he is miraculously, though not surprisingly, still alive. Blah! He's alive. He opens his eyes. I mean, none of us reading were surprised, but the bridgemen were very surprised. Of course they were, yep. So we get to see the discovery of Kaladin and his him being alive through Tef's eyes. Yeah, and it's, it's the first time we've encountered Tef's perspective. Right, and he seems not... He seems to tie together the presence of the Dunsphere and the mystery of him being alive. It's a little hint that maybe Teft knows something. Yeah, and having read these, because we learn more about Teft in chapter 38, 38, sorry, uh, in chapter 38. And, you know, there's a, a little bit of a reveal there, I think. But having read back through this chapter, I don't feel like there's really a lot you can guess at other than, oh, why is it Tef's perspective? That's interesting. But I don't think there's anything you could reasonably guess at about Teft in the in this particular chapter. Other than that, he tied those two things together. Correct. Yeah. So what do you think's up with that giant face? Is it the face of Bo? <laughs> I think it might be. No, the face of Bo is way too cool. I got an ominous feeling from this dude. So my question is, was it real or was it a hallucination? You know, and it's hard. It's hard to know. I feel like it. I feel like if it was real, if it was really like the face of God or something like that, then it would have been more. I don't know. It would have been more grand. I don't know. It just, you know, it would have been more of a light breaking from the sky and suddenly everything was quiet and I had a moment and then and then bam we were back in the storm it wasn't like that it was just like I saw this face I had a cold chill and I looked and it was gone um well also when the face smiled the the sphere in his hand lit up at that moment yeah that's that's true yeah yeah I had to question uh why does it have to be a storm father like <laughs> does it have to be a man I Maybe the storm has a penis. I you don't know. I mean, could it have been like it's a very, another planet, Chad? I don't know. I mean, storms could have anatomy. They they could. I don't know. Could it have been like a large woman who wore flannel, or maybe like two storm fathers, and if they love each other very much, like I don't know. I don't. We know. don't like to make assumptions. It's at not. This point. It's not for me to to assume. Uh, I do. Ha- I had a question here also. Would Cal have survived this if not for Syl? Her being a windspread, also telling him, kind of, you know, telling him what to do and coaching him through it. I don't know. I don't know either. So, so we see this. The chapter is called A Light by Which to See. And so that's 
a theme that emerges here. We have Kaladin, obviously, is the metaphorical light for the Bridgman. And then we have the literal light of the sphere in his hand that we're assuming he's going to drain to survive. Well, and I don't know, maybe, maybe that. So I had to question, okay, what what does the face and then the lighting up mean, right? So there's a part of me that was going down the road of, and I said this in my prediction, and this is the part of my prediction that so far I don't think was right. You know, it was the idea that like he would be touched by something and it would give him all these crazy powers. So that was the way I go into it. Right. And so this lights up and I think, okay, now he's going to have some sort of powers that he didn't have before. Well, in the chapters that come after it, we don't see that, but it just crossed my mind that maybe even with a full mark of stormlight, he would have never survived that. Maybe this face gave him just enough to get him through this alive, and that's really all it was. Extra stormlight power. He got some extra stormlight power. Stormlight juice. Watching you. See, I, I would watch your face for clues, but as we've established, I'm going blind. So from this distance, I can't tell. You ain't getting nothing out of this face. <laughs> so they find him hanging, upside down, torn up, bloody, shirtless, lean, like an Abercrombie and Fitch ad. Exactly like an Abercrombie and Fitch ad. That's all, I mean, that's what it smacked up to me. <laughs> so chapter 36 is called The Lesson. In this chapter, Yasna decides that Shalan's education needs a more hands-on approach. She takes her to the bad part of town for a philosophy lesson. When they're followed into a dark alley by a group of ill-intentioned men, Yasna soul-casts the hell out of them. Shalan is so horrified by what Yasna has done that she finally musters up the courage to steal the soul-caster and manages to escape undetected. What? Did you think that was going to happen this early in the book? No, no, it that one caught me by surprise that it happened so quick, probably because so many other things were happening so damn slowly. Well, and it, it so far Shalon's character, her arc seems to have been building towards that being the end game. Like it's all about stealing the soul caster. Is she going to steal the soul caster and you kind of you, you're led to this expectation that it's not going to that's going to be her final chapter and now we're, you know, 500 pages from the end of the book and she stole the soul caster. Yes, so. she did. She did. Oh, that was kind of cool. This chapter, man, I got, I got so many notes about this chapter. There's a lot going on in this chapter. Like this chapter was the section as far as I'm concerned. Like there's a lot, there's just so much going on here. The two obvious things, the big, the big things are what Yasna does in that alley. Right. And the fact that Shalon actually steals it. She actually gets a pair. She <laughs> she did temporarily have a pair of soul casters. <laughs> so technically, you are right. One of my first questions here is, we open up the chapter with Shalon reading back over Gavilar's statements about the Parshendi and discovering them. And 
I had a question. So is what Gavilar says about the parchment true when he says, you know, they'll just sit there, just sit there if some Rosharan doesn't come along and tell them what to do? Yeah, I think that that I think that that's true of the parchment that they that or at least if that was just Gavilar saying that Yasna would have corrected him or uh, yeah, all, and, all indications yeah. show that that's that that's true of the parchment. It's strange. He comes across them and he's like, other people, they're doing civilized things, but they don't even look like us. What is this? This is crazy. I think it was more that they look like the Parshman. I mean, there are other people, different colors and True. races that and different civilizations. I think the Alethi were used to that, but it was seeing Parshman who they're used to we'll just sit and stare at a wall if you don't tell them what to do. How can I sit in judgment over these fictional people if you keep pointing out these logical... <laughs> this, well, you can judge them for other things. Listen, this straw man's not going to build itself. <laughs> My favorite part of the early part of the chapter, though, is the undertext. Oh, yes, absolutely. The idea of the undertext. Yes, that all the women have agreed. <laughs> they're going to make a pact to write a, write about, but then never reveal the fact that they write about the comments and the truthfulness or sanity of, of these men who are dictating. <laughs> like, I find that just hilarious. And I, I think in our world, things would be better if we did it that way. <laughs> I mean, think about it. There'd be... No Harvey Weinstein, right? Because mm -hmm. everyone would have known. No Mein Kampf, <laughs> right? And the 95 thesis for Martin Luther would have had a footnote at the bottom that said, eh, he was pretty drunk at the time. <laughs> yeah, the undertext is hilarious. That was hilarious. Absolutely. She also, uh, she she says a couple times in here, you know, considering what she'd done. And you can tell that she's you still- You mean Shalon? Shalon, yeah, Shalon. Yes, Shalon- um, This is prior to the whole- Prior to the Soulcaster stealing, yeah. she refers to the terrible things that she has done that have haunted her. So we don't know what those things are as of yet, but Shalon's carrying guilt for something. Well, because she killed her father. P -p -p Poker face, P -p poker face. <laughs> Your face is all a blur over there. I can't tell. <laughs> so after killing her father to protect her brothers, what's a little light theft between regional rivals? This couldn't possibly go bad. There's a comment here in here also about a Lancerin, which I guess is another sort of gem heart-wearing, hard-exterior creature hunted to extinction. She tells me, New York City debutantes better watch out. <laughs> so the other, well, the other observation that I had was that they're going back and forth, uh, Yasna and Shalon talking about Gavilar's death and assassination right. and the Parshendi and why did they do it and all this. And it was interesting to me that Shalon never seems to consider that she's talking about a very sensitive subject. This is yes. this is the sister of the king. This is not 
you know, but they're treating this is it as her father that they're talking or her about. father. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but they're treating it as though it's a very academic thing. And Yasna s- appears to be treating it that way as well. Yeah. I mean, Shalon seems to be taking her cues from Yasna in this in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how how Yasna talks about it. So, yep. And then they start talking about philosophy, and they're going to walk around the city with the great unwashed. Yasna lets her hair down. You know, she's backpacking through Europe. She's going to stay at a hostel like some kind of liberal. <laughs> and then my next note is, what the frilly heck was that? What the frilly heck was that? What the hell was that? Is this Yasna or is this like Omar from The Wire? <laughs> I think they would get along great. I think they would get along great. So Omar coming, you know, like. I think it's interesting that, so Yasna wants to divest Shalon of the illusion that there is any kind of old defining capital T truth out yeah. there. And we've seen the word truth with the capital T a couple of times throughout the book enough that it feels significant you know we talk about shinovar the valley of truth mm-hmm. and a, the couple of times that we've seen excerpts from way of kings the word truth has been used sometimes with a capital t yeah like that's, that's a true. very important i never catch that concept yeah. and when yasna is telling shalon you feel like there's this all-encompassing truth and she's talking about when we're children we want everything to be make sense we want everything to be as it should and so we look for those answers from the adults in our lives and we accept what they tell us and then as we mature one of those signs is that we begin to question those things so yasna is all about this relativistic morality this humanism and so this is obviously a huge exploration of some of those concepts. Yasna says at one point, the older we grow, the more likely we are to reject the simple answers unless someone gets in our way and demands they be accepted nonetheless. Salty. A little salty there. You can't see me, but I'm wagging my head. We also see a tiny, tiny hint that Yasna has some trauma in her past when she is talking about She's justifying herself to Shalon because Shalon's reaction is pretty much what yours was. What the frilly heck was that? Yeah. And and Yasna says, you know, this is this wasn't just about teaching you a lesson. I decided that I wanted to pay Taravangian back for his hospitality by ridding him of some of these criminals. And, you know, I suspect that they were paying off the city watch. So the city watch wasn't going to do anything about it. But then she also, in the way she is talking about them, Shalon suspects that something was done to her in the past. Yeah, because she, she's very, very bitter. Almost, uh, we almost get a, not to the same degree, but we almost get a Meloan lackless vibe. Yes. Yes. Those dirty Rue rabble have done something. So right before all this happens, Yasna asks, do you think this is wise? You know, and Shalon and everybody else, you know, who's reading is like, no, it's not. And that's what makes it entrapment. Interesting. Explain that a bit more. 
well, she laid, she's laying a trap. Like, this is not self-defense when you go out and lay a a trap for somebody. It's not, she was not defending herself. She was hunting. That's the moral quandary there. And it's interesting, if you go on various forums and message boards, people have very strong opinions about this. I'm sure that they do. This was one of the only times I've seen before we got even to the end of the week, somebody had to make a, a post on the Facebook group site just about this chapter to be like, hold on, guys. Have you gotten to 36 yet? <laughs> you know, and there was a lot of a lot of people going back and forth on this trying to People feel very strongly and there are a lot of people who strongly dislike Shalon's character because of her reaction to this. Mm. It's inter it's interesting. It is. But those guys made a mistake because they should have asked if she was a wizard before they tried to rob her because they have to tell you they have to tell you. <laughs> Are you a wizard? They, you a wizard, man? They got to tell you, man. They have to. <laughs> That's funny. So after she kills the first dude and the rest try to run, and then she just executes them on the spot. So again, not this is not self-defense. You know, it's sort of like the morale, is it, and I think where people come down on this and we can kind of look at it in, our, in a historical example in our own life is like the six days war with Israel and the preemptive strike. You know, was that or was that not moral? And there's, you know, obviously a lot of very strong opinions and I'm not going to say one way or the other, but I think, you know, if you think that going out and hunting criminals who are clearly criminals and clearly dangerous and making that sort of preemptive strike, if you think that is the right and moral thing to do, then you're going to come down on the side of Yasna here. You know, If you think that she went out hunting and murdered these people, then you're going to come down on the side of Shalon. But good writing from Brandon Sanderson that I feel like he was able to make it so it's hard for you not to feel conflicted, no matter what opinion you have. I think you have to feel some level of conflict here. And it's not, you can't really clear cut argue one way or the other. All the Alethi philosophy we find out later seems to clearly argue in the side of Yasna, but considering how harsh this society is, I'm not sure that that means a whole lot. And it's interesting, this this idea of relativistic morality is one of the biggest things that we've seen explored in Shalon and Yasna's storyline. Yeah. So it kind of comes to a head here. She's and, leaving a lot of dead Dutch backpackers in an alley, man. Like, this is not <laughs> the liberal I thought she was. Like, uh, But I, I do have to question, so two of them turn to smoke, one of them turns to fire, and they just go up, no evidence. Great. The fourth... She turns into a crystalline statue. Is is that going to come back around? Because I hope it does. Because to me, it seems like you leave a crystallized corpse sitting in an alley 
in a world where magic and stormlight exist, but it doesn't appear that anybody knows how to use it as a weapon, or if they do, they don't because they're um, they're ardents, then that's going to be something that's going to cause a stir. Like when that is discovered, I would think that that would cause all kinds of hullabaloo. Hulla and baloo. In the same word? Crazy up in here. You ready to move on? No, I'm not ready to move on. Lay some more notes on me then. I'm not ready to move on. She says she didn't do it to prove a point. She did it to make Shalon ask questions. Hmm. Those are some expensive ask questions because mm-hmm. it costs four people their lives. I, I That, I think, is the biggest thing to me that makes me want to lean towards not liking Yasna is you did do it just to prove... You killed four people just to prove a point. Well, you could argue that that's only part of her motivation. It seems to me there's a deeper motivation there that has to do with a traumatic event in her past and with at least in part a true desire to make the world a better place by getting rid of these criminals in her belief. She truly believes that if she didn't kill these men, they were going to do the same thing they intended to do to her, to some washerwoman. I think she even says, you know, I can defend myself, but some washerwoman walking home can't. And they are going to just turn around and do the same thing to me. And especially, I think she says that to justify why she killed the men who were fleeing. Yeah, and I and I, I do understand that side of the argument for sure. Uh, the other part of it, and this is my last note here, the other part of it that's interesting to me is and, and I deliberately talked about the Six Days War on purpose, right? Because the whole issue that people talk about with you know the Middle East is that it's it's retribution and revenge going back so far and so many times. Where do you chase it? You can't chase it back to an origin. You know, we're killing you because you did this to us, and well, we killed. Well, we did it to you because you did that to us, right? So you can have that same sort of thing here. Something clearly happened to Yasna to agitate her or traumatize her, better word, to make her want to go out and do this. She judged these men for their murders, which they did, and they were going to do, and then in the process, murdered them. Shalon is going to judge Yasna for her murdering them. And as a result, she goes on and steals from Yasna. In that, in her anger and judgment, she goes on and steals from her. But Yasna is going to walk out here and do this again and could potentially get killed because she's now going to have a broken soul caster. So, like, you could, this chain of, like, it just, it goes back and back and back and back. And the other... The other comment I have is this is not the first time Yasna has done this. It certainly doesn't seem that way. This was practiced. Like, this was not extemporaneous. You know, she'd done this before. Now I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I've said my piece. <laughs> no, no, this is a 
this was a great chapter. It Definitely was a good some chapter. Heavy stuff to get into. It was a good chapter. And I agree that I I really like the way Brandon Sanderson lays it out, they, where you can see both sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very thought provoking. So chapter thirty seven is called Sides. It's a flashback chapter. And in this flashback, Kaladin tags along with his father at a dinner with Bright Lord Roshone. It's unpleasant, and so is Roshone's son, Rilir. Liren is wily, though, and he manipulates Roshone into thinking that he is winning. On the way home, Kaladin realizes that his father is more cunning than he seems. And oh, that he actually did steal those fears from Bright Lord Wistio. Wistio? Yeah. Wistio. Either Wistio or Wistio. Don't know, but he got robbed on his deathbed by Liren. And Kaladin's like, holy crap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was pretty upset with him. So it's very interesting that we have this thread carried through from the previous chapter of this theme of morality and and right and wrong. And, you know, Kaladin is kind of like, I I can't decide whether what you did was incredibly wrong or incredibly brave. Like, was it right to steal the spheres knowing that Wistio probably would have given it to them anyway if he had been in his right mind? Like, what what do you think about that? What Liren did? It smacks of Ned Stark to me. This is exactly what Ned Stark does when I'm not, I don't, if this is a spoiler, it's like a couple hundred pages into the book. I don't, I don't care. When Robert Baratheon dies, this is exactly what Ned Stark does to Robert Baratheon on his deathbed. He just writes down what he wants to happen. Right. What he thinks should happen. Yeah. What he thinks is 100% the right thing to happen, but he just writes down what he wants to happen. There's no, I mean... Very, very honorable Liren. Very, very honorable Ned Stark. This is this is what happened. I guess if you ask me the question, do I think what he did was right? That that's an, another really difficult moral question as well, because objectively, no, he stole from this man. The man, he maybe he was going to give, maybe he wasn't going to. We we don't know. It doesn't seem like there's like a will process, or he was involved. You know, I don't think that they would have had much recourse if he didn't do this. So he sort of ensured what eh, Wistia maybe would have done anyway. We don't really know, but I think objectively, it's clearly wrong. Like there's no real question about that. But it goes back to something we've said back in the Gentleman Bastard series where we said when the society is so corrupt, particularly over such incredibly arbitrary things such as your eye color, do you have a responsibility to upset that society and rebel against it? Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it, and that's definitely a theme that's getting explored here. And we forget, too, that the Wistio had had a daughter. So yeah. how did those spheres being stolen affect her? You don't know for sure whether she would have gotten them or whether she still would have been. It seems like she's kind of being forced to be betrothed to this, to Relier. 
would she have been in a different situation? I don't think the spear, the spheres would have made one difference one way or the other. No. The reason why she's getting roped into this is because she lives in a house with men with swords and a government that says, no, this is a person who's your master. Now, she has no appeal. So that was going to happen one way or the other. And I get the sense that as a percentage of their wealth, this was a, not really a difference maker of a thing, a relatively insignificant thing in that regard. It, it's, it is put out there that she got a dowry from Sadius. Yeah. So it, it's sort of what I think is more interesting is what is Rashon's motivation? Right, and Roshone and Liren have a very tense conversation at dinner. Roshone can't prove that Liren stole the spheres, and Liren points out that as a surgeon, he has certain rights, so he would probably win an inquest. And Roshone really isn't that interested in going through all of that. I mean, he's kind of petty and spiteful, and he sounds like he's kind of broke, so he wants that money pretty badly, but not enough to br- drag other light eyes into it. I guess that is his, I guess simple theft is his, simple greed no, is his motivation. No, it says in there that he's pretty broke from whatever political scandal caused him to be exiled here. Yeah. Basically, basically the back ass end of nowhere. The th- he's pretty broke as well. The thing, the thing about it is that he's going to get that dowry from Sadius. So he's going to get that money which is going to be significantly more than anything that Liren stole. But but that may not come for years. So I suspect it, it just comes down to simple greed. And, and, and spite and pettiness. Yeah, you know, he doesn't yeah. like where he is. But it, it does seem short-sighted to me, I guess. And I guess that just shows you the degree to which this guy doesn't care. He's theoretically going to be the person who's going to reside over this town for the foreseeable future. And it seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that it's a little on the, it's slightly rare for a town of this size to have a surgeon of this skill level. Yeah. And so to convict and imprison or potentially chase off the only surgeon, which is really an asset to your town, just seems like a really short-sighted thing to do. Well, I think you're underestimating how much money it is that they're talking about. I may be. This is not like a small chunk of someone's fortune. Think like four years tuition and room and board living expenses for someone to go to Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm. You know, so like a half a million dollars. Yes, yeah, like. it's a it's a pretty big chunk. Yeah. And so for a disgraced noble who's being shoved out here into the country, you know, this is this is a very big chunk of money. Hmm. My my only other note is in the beginning of the chapter, there's a conversation where uh, Liren, I'm sorry, Kaladin's mom and Tien and Kaladin are talking about Spren. And, yeah, I noted that too. Yeah, and she says that Spren are the spirit of change, which is, you know, I'm now trying to filter everything I know about Spren sort of through that lens. Yeah, she says that Spren appear when something changes. Yeah. They're the heart of change and therefore the heart of all things. 
So Kaladin's like, what, this vegetable here has a spren? All sarcastic. And his mom's like, yeah, basically. And if I cut it up, then it has like smaller spren. I mean. Yeah. So this is something, not to get spoilery, but this concept of each thing's objects, creatures, all having a spirit. Um, is something that's seen in other works of Brandon Sanderson as well. So that's just mm. interesting to note. Cool. It's pretty cool. It's groovy, man. <laughs> in one of his um, short stories, especially one of my favorites that he's written, it's called The Emperor's Soul. And basically in it, the ma- the way the magic system works is the magic users create these stamps. Yeah. And by they do that by learning an object's history and if they learn it well enough they can create a stamp that will change the object's history by like speaking to the object's spirit basically so it's really it's it's just cool and it's neat how that kind of ties together between the works but but that's seen in a couple of his other series as well no james brown he had soul and he was super bad i gotcha <laughs> It's true. Again, we hear mention of the callings as well. Yeah. When Kaladin is, he's sent to the kitchen. Liren sends him out because he's obviously not going to be able to handle what the conversation with Roshone. So he's sent to the kitchen and in comes Laurel and Rillier and they're all kind of cozy. And Rillier's a, a jerk, obviously. Um, and he asks, he tells Kaladin to go fetch their, go fetch them some food. And Kaladin's like, well, I'm not your servant. And uh, he's like, well, are you too proud? Are you too proud to go get me some food? And he's like, well, that's not my calling, capital C calling. So then they argue back and forth about how it's neither of their callings and whose calling is it closer. So we just, again, see like something that's important in their culture. Well, I I think it was also an interesting beat for Kaladin from a character standpoint, because uh, that's a big part of what causes him to decide that he wants to go to Carboranth instead of become a soldier because he's like, I I have to learn how to deal with these people. This guy, you know, just ran rhetorical circles around me. I don't know. I don't know how to operate in their society. I'm going to look like a fool. Mm -hmm. But he he doesn't think of himself as less than. He just recognizes that he's not properly equipped to deal with people like this. Who is properly equipped to deal with a Chad with three pop collars? nobody is like you can make that joke because your name is Chad. exactly i i get away i can get away with that so i mean you know you got to prepare for that shit <laughs> yeah really or such a chad isn't he uh, oh my god yeah totally all right chapter 38 is called envisager after his ordeal kaladin is drifting in and out of consciousness he even sees a death spren, which is fought off by Syl. Aw. Tef sneaks in with a lighted sphere and watches Kaladin drain it. He doesn't seem that surprised. And he, in his ruminations, thinks, I've got to tell the Invisitors. Before he remembers that the Invisitors are all dead because of something that he did. That's it. That's the chapter. That's the best I can explain it. It was a hard chapter to summarize plot-wise because it's pretty much Teft walking into the room and putting a sphere on Kaladin and then that's it. 
That's what happens. Yeah, from a plot perspective, there's not there's not a huge amount that happens here. But Kaladin comes alive. He's come to show them the way. And I love it. Baby, I love your way. Do you feel like we do? I'm not encouraging him, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm just, I'm sitting here with a so straight face. <laughs> so once again, does he survive this without Syl? I think here it's a little bit more of a question mark. See, I would say here it's less of a question mark because with the storm, okay, there's a storm raging and she's just standing there with her tiny hands outstretched. What is she doing? She's not doing anything. But in this, we see her actually fighting off the death spread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm agreeing agreeing with you. Whereas, yeah, I'm I'm 100% in agreement with you on that. Yeah. Syl is the spirit of change. The change of Kaladin from a lowly squad leader to a messiah. Right. He is going to come out all heroish. Well, and he's going to be a wind walker and he's got a wind spren when these formative things happen and his spirit changes and he becomes enslaved. Sill becomes a representation of that change. So Teft obviously thinks that Kaladin is some sort of prophesied messiah. Or something. He was a part of some cult called Scient, I mean, uh, the Invisagers. What's up with those Invisagers? Oh, my goodness. They're like, come in for just a personality test. But then <laughs> next thing you know, you're on an ocean, in the, you know, in a boat in the Indian Ocean. And there's some 15-year-old girl telling you what to do. And the <laughs> Commodore wants to see you. And. You're not getting off. You that know boat. too much about the Invisitors. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read ahead. I swear. <laughs> Next thing, they got their own television channel. That's true, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's freaky. A little creepy. So yes, we learned that Teft was part of a group called the Invisitors, and he rejected them, and now they're all dead because of something that he has done. Or if there are others, he has no idea how to locate them. Yeah. So obviously he's some kind of group. They've been looking out for people showing this kind of ability, I guess, from what we can guess. And uh, Teft was one of them. And now he's the only one. So we've got this new thing, these envisagers who show up. They're dead. But they're not dead. I'm so confused. I'm trying to consolidate facts, but this evil author wants to add mystery. He wants to add anguish to my linear brain. Ah! Another smoke monster. <laughs> really? You think the Invisitors are like a smoke monster? No, not really. It's just it's every section we go through, there's some new new question that's added we don't we get less answers than we get new questions typically although i would say over this section and the last section i feel like we sort of netted out i feel like we we got a couple of answers we got a couple of new questions yeah not you know we didn't walk away with one answer and 17 new questions but this is definitely a new element one more group to add into 
all the other groups I'm trying to keep track of. Though I suspect we may have already met somebody from the Envisagers. Ooh, who do you suspect? So I I went back and forth over it. I was initially leaning towards the people who captured Seth. Okay. But I think it is the group of men that we met up in Pure Lake. Hmm, okay. That's that's what I think. That's a very good guess. Eh, it's a guess. <laughs> but they were looking for somebody some very specific, you know, anime style character person with an arrow like <laughs> anime face. Style character. I love it. And you know, if that cat was just showing up for no damn reason, well then we wouldn't have bothered to put the chapter in here. We will see. We'll see. We'll see. All right, so chapter 39 is called Burned Into Her. In this chapter, Shalon's having a very hard time with her recent experiences. The violence she witnessed in the alley with Yasna and stealing the soul caster have her on edge. All of the philosophies she researches exonerate Yasna, but ultimately she can't condone her actions. She also faces the quandary that she doesn't yet know how to use the soul caster, so she can't fully make her escape yet. So we kind of start off. So this is all Shalon just kind of struggling with stuff. Yeah. We start off with her going back and forth about whether what Yasna did was right. Uh, she has a conversation with her brothers telling them that she has the item, but she doesn't feel like she can leave yet because she's wants to wait until she, Yasna discovers the item is broken and to make sure that she's really getting away with it. And she also wants a chance to try to figure out how to use it as well. And also I think she's just really kind of struggling with the fact that she took it you know, and whether she wants to go through with it at all. Yeah, at this point, she could still reverse course. We have another example here of her starting to draw absentmindedly. Yep, this and, is a pretty big thing, too. Yeah, and having another weird sort of scene pop up. She has this scene popping up of, of a man in a lavish hall uh, who's well-dressed laying dead face down in a pool of blood. I, this is probably the question I spent the most time on. Yeah. In this section, going back and forth or trying to say, at first it didn't, I was like, well, who is this? Who is this? You know? And then it crossed my mind. Oh, obviously it's her father. Obviously it's her father. However, I'm not convinced because while that would seem like the obvious or I don't know if it's obvious, but it would seem like at least potentially it could be. Mm -hmm. I went back and I read uh, like those early chapters. I think it was like chapter seven where like you get the first idea of, of this sort of hint that, you know, she has a shard blade and may have been responsible for her father's death directly or indirectly. Mm -hmm. And it says very little. It says non-balot was there bruised mm -hmm. in a wearing a coat she was standing holding a silvery sword. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like, you really don't get a whole lot else. We speculated that it was a shard blade because of the descri description of it. When somebody 
gets killed with a shard blade, however, it doesn't cause a bleeding. Correct. However, if it wasn't a deliberate death, it was an accidental thing, like she, you know, cut the table in half and it, I don't know, flipped up and launched a bowl of bananas in the air and the bananas <laughs> hit the chandelier and the chandelier spun. <laughs> chandelier fell on him, then he'd be lying in a pool of blood. And chandelier. I, I don't I don't know. We don't know. I don't know. So I, I still think that's the most likely scenario is that this is her remembering her father, particularly because there appears to be guilt when she recalls this and she just tears it up and throws it away. Right. So that's what I believe it is. But the question of why is he laying in a pool of blood if she has a shard blade is still sort of a question. We're assuming she has a shard blade. There's evidence that leads us to believe that's the case, but not anything that's corroborated. The only other question I have or comment that I thought is... It seems to me, although I will acknowledge that this is a risk, I think the smartest thing that she could do, since she appears to have the ability to leave and go wander around on her own, is to find some place outside of the Palanium, outside of the palace, to fucking hide this thing. Like, hiding it in her room, in her chest. I feel like she's keeping it on her a lot too y- in yes. her safe well, pouch. She, yeah, uh, yeah, which which is the, the equivalent the the equivalent of or whatever she's not lethy but yeah. it's the equivalent of her sticking it in her bra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. That's better than keeping it in the chest in the room. It sounds a lot more comfortable than sticking things in your bra as well. Well, yeah, I would agree with that. I I still think she needs to can hide that son of a bitch somewhere away from there because at this because then she she has deniability which she gets caught with it she has no deniability it's a risk to bury something or hide something in a place you don't know especially because to hide in a place where no one else is ever going to go means you're obvious red-haired light-eyed ass is going to have to be crawling around in places where somebody might see you so i understand it's a risk if it was me that shit would be buried noted (laughs) (laughs) it's also hard to bury things here though because it is yeah what what is the death ritual for these people i feel like i should know that they tear their flesh into burned. ribbons. I think and... they burn. I think they burn them. Yeah. I feel like on the plateau. Yeah, I feel like they burn them. I believe that was said when they they bring their dead back and burn them. Right. Yeah. They would have to. Everything is rock. There's well, no yeah, yeah. soil. Yeah, you're not digging into anything. Right. They would probably be repulsed by that idea. So chapter forty, last yep. one we're covering for this book club. Yep. It is called. There were a lot of chapters we covered in this one. It's a lot of short a lot chapters. of short chapters. Yeah. Yeah called eyes of red and blue yep you know what i called it what this shit again (laughs) that's so true kaladin wakes up from his convalescence a hero he's just as baffled as anyone else except for teft maybe about his miraculous recovery but he isn't given long to puzzle over that mystery before another bridge run is underway and he joins the team carrying water skins 
Back at the camp, Rock is given a razor and Sigzel opens up a bit about his story. A bit. A tiny bit. Also, Kaladin gets all mopey again. Yep. Eeyore complains about the rain. This is kind of what I was talking about when I was talking about characters moving forward or not. Yeah, this is not moving forward. This is not moving forward. But again... Does a real person with depression in an intense circumstance like this just get over his depression one day and never go back into that way of thinking? Uh, no, of course not. Of course not. And, no. And so that's where you get that balance between, yeah, I mean, you need the plot to move forward. You need characters to progress. But it's it's not realistic when they just kind of like... I don't know. You get you get into that like video game quest mode where it's like, okay, the character checks off this and then he does this and then he does he just moves forward plot wise, but there's no like development character wise. At the same point in time, and we talked early in this episode about the concept of, you know, reading an outline is pretty freaking boring. We need to put flesh on the skeleton. Otherwise, it's just fucking gross. Right. Uh, The other side to that is. Novels and stories should not read too much like real life because real life is boring. I don't think anyone would call this book boring. Not not saying that, but but you, what I'm what I'm getting at is there's a balance to be struck, right? You know, yes. The um the part of it I think that bothered me, like I don't I don't begrudge Kaladin his sort of back swings and his being moody because. He's in a shit situation. Right. You know, he's in a really horrible, horrible situation. So like him saying, we're all going to die. There's no way out of this to me doesn't seem like, you know, it seems appropriate. Right. The problem I have with it, though, is it comes minutes after his ass miraculously wakes up from something that nobody in the world should have survived. He's clearly some sort of freaking messiah figure, right? But instead, he's like, just got saved from a high storm by a metaphysical force from heaven. (laughs) But it was probably for no reason. (laughs) Fucking Eeyore. He is. Right? Definitely Eeyore. I'm not going to. I can't even argue there. Christopher Robin comes up and he's like, my only friend is a perverted half naked bear. (laughs) Slaps him. Straighten your shit out, man. We all got problems. It's so true. Probably going rain. <laughs> don't ruin Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> oh, I don't have to ruin Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> There's no work involved in that. So I, I, so I, I, I will yeah. say what in Kaladin's defense, maybe... I think what motivates his backswing, if you want to call it that, into feeling hopeless is, yeah, I mean, yes, he's, he did survive miraculously, but he hasn't even really processed that yet. He kind of comes out and all of a sudden there's a bridge run, so he's running along. But I think what's motivating his backswing into hopelessness is his realization during the high storm that... Oh, wait, Bridgman aren't supposed to survive. There's a greater picture here. You know, when he was standing at the edge of that chasm ready to throw himself in and then he he made a choice to walk away and to 
devote himself to this new purpose. It was just about keeping his men alive, making their lives better. And he he moved forward with that purpose. And all of a sudden, he's realized that it, he he's that's not going to work. The things as he's been doing them, we're not going to work. And there is no way for his bridge crew to remain where they are and survive. Yeah, I think also he, one of the big goals up to this point for him is was to build unity, build family, and really give these men hope. And he, he has come to realize that they're, on the face of what he sees materially, politically, strategically around him, there is no hope. But he did just see the the fucking face of face God of in the sky. Like, if that's not a reason to sort of reorient your fucking brainstem, I'm not quite sure what is. But... He went through something that was intensely emotional. I don't want to begrudge him having a little bit of a come down. He was rolling at the club. He was rolling till four a.m. You know, and then all the MDMA came out of his system. (laughs) It was all his serotonin was spent, and he went home and he watched fried green tomatoes and he cried on his couch. <laughs> Poor Kaladin. That's we've what he all, needs. We've all been we've there. All man. been there. We've all been. We've there. all been there, man. Jessica Tandy was a sweet lady. It's true. Poor Iggy Threadgood. <laughs> so I really like the title of this chapter and the story that Sigil tells at the end. Well, first of all. Rock getting the razor from the men. I mean, come on. Oh, it was very sweet. How sweet was that? Very sweet, yeah. Um, And then Sigzil tells this story to Kaladin at the end of these people, the Meribethians. And they, when they condemn a, a person to death, they will hang them upside down over this body of water that has these huge great shells in it. Okay, and they'll cut them on either cheek. And... The prisoners are allowed to ask for a quick death, but they're told that if they hang there for a week and don't get eaten, that they can go free. So some of them choose to do that anyway. And so among these people, saying that someone has eyes of red and blue, red for the blood dripping, blue for the eyes, or blue for the water or something like that, is a way of saying you're not accepting the reality of the situation, uh, of this bad situation. And so that's what kind of... Kaladin and, and these men are they're struggling with are we just yeah. you know is it hopeless is this a hopeless situation is it even worth what they're trying to do and and as much as I'm complaining about it the reality is is this is a really well written chapter right. and the juxtaposition between that story and Kaladin's mopey ass nature and the men all around them in this shit situation but, you know, slapping each other on the back and laughing and enjoying food and shaving their faces and Rock saying, I'm going to bring you all home with me and make you my family. Like, it's a beautiful juxtaposition. It is. And it's what, well-written. What we're beginning to see is this story becoming less about 
a messiah figure or less about this hero's journey and more about an ensemble. So at some point, I think we're going to see these characters come alongside Kaladin and being the support for him. And we already are seeing that a little bit. Yeah. Because where Kaladin is coming down in the dumps, the others are starting to lift him up and to lift each other up. So another thing I think is interesting in this section overall are the the little snapters. So I wanted to go through and read them and get your take because I don't know how closely you read them because there's oh, some world building stuff in there. I mean, I've read a, I've, I read them, but as is my want, I go, well, let's get to the and I don't right never pay enough attention. Well, to and them. I think it's interesting when you read just them all together, because I think we talked about this before that we think that they are um, snippets from Yasna's research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so to kind of speculate on what what do you think she's researching? So I'm just going to read them, if you don't mind me Absolutely, reading a do. whole lot. Okay. The first one just says, I walked from Obama Bar to Urithiru. I probably said that wrong. I'm sorry. I know someone. Erithiru. 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 I walked from Obama Bar Erithiru. to Erithiru. I'm not going to read like where they're from, but that's one of them. Okay. Though many wished Erithiru... Erethiru? Damn it. Erethiru. Though many wished Erethiru to be built in Alethala, it was obvious that it could not be. And so it was that we asked for it to be placed westward in the place nearest to honor. And that is from the oldest surviving original source mentioning the city. Taking the Dawn Shard, known to bind any creature voidish or mortal, he crawled up the steps crafted for heralds, ten strides tall apiece, toward the grand temple above. I found no modern explanation of what these Dawn Shards are. They are ignored by scholars, though talk of them was obviously prevalent among those recording the early mythologies. Born from darkness, they bear its taint still, marked upon their bodies, much as the fire marks their souls. The last one, death upon the lips, sound upon the air, char upon the skin. From the last desolation. So that's all of them that we read in this section. Words and wind, man. Oh, one more. I'm sorry. I missed this one. Within a heartbeat, Alizaro was there, crossing a distance that would have taken more than four months to travel by foot. Another folktale, this one recorded in Among the Dark-Eyed by Kalanam. Stories of instantaneous travel and the Oath Gates pervade these tales. So we have Oath Gates, we have Dawn Shards, we have creatures with charred skin. Fucking polar bears on tropical islands. <laughs> Smoke monsters. <laughs> so we'll just continue to speculate there. You just you just have that look. I'm sorry, you had that frustrated look. <laughs> There's too much. Just trying to process a lot of information. It's right a now. lot of information. <laughs> it's a big book, man. It's a big world. I promise it all comes back around. Oh, I believe it's you. It's so cool. I believe you that it does. You're gonna love it. I do believe that. So So There's a giant goddamn hurricane. There is. Thankfully, I hope all of our listeners in that area, North Carolina, hope you're all doing okay. Yeah, the the folks that I know that are close are Daryl and um, Eric Algier. 
though I don't think any of them are like right in the right right in the eye of the storm or anything, uh, but they're relatively close. I'm sure they're going to get impacted by it. We are like 350, 400 miles north of where the eye of the hurricane came, but we had some folks, I think Theo in particular, you know, who aren't from the state saying, are you guys going to be okay? And I just want to say that we appreciate people's interest or, or concern. concern. Thank you uh, for that. Thankfully, uh, the U.S. is a massive freaking country, and so when a hurricane hits... Uh, you know, a relatively small portion of it's going to be impacted. We will get a crap ton of rain over the next several days, and there'll be some flooding, but nothing significant. But um, but we are concerned for our folks out there, and I'm sure there are other listeners in that area. Uh, just, we just don't know because that's the way of the Internet is we don't know where everybody lives. So um, So God bless you, and be safe. Speaking of Daryl, he came on our Facebook group page and said, Chad's comparison of the women of Roshar to the women of Westeros was spot on. And it was. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. Uh, ben Finkelstein said, finally, now it's time to catch up. He now has the way of kings, so he will be catching up. Sweet. So, welcome, Ben. We look forward to seeing you when you get here. As I said, there was a lot of conversation about this particular chapter. So Brian McClure started a thread on the Facebook group page saying, Have any of you read past chapter 36 yet? If not, spoiler warning, please come back when you finish that chapter. And then we had a conversation going back and forth about what, uh, one, what we could do on the on the page. And we feel like... As long as people are saying, hey, there's going to be spoilers for this in this thread and then posting their spoilers below that, completely fine, completely on the up and up. But a lot of conversation about uh, back going back and forth with was that moral conundrum? You know, was Yasna right? Was Shalon right? Etc. Brian Dana says, yes, I'm in. I have one thing to say to you guys. Life spren? I will never be able to imagine anything else. <laughs> Neither will any of us. Exactly. And that's all <laughs> part of the plan. So we are, as we said a couple of weeks ago, we started a an Instagram account. And it's always a little, I, I feel like, you know, we're an audio medium. So what does Instagram hold for us? But we're finding some some things that we can post on there. And there's some content on there that you're not going to see anywhere else. So if you're on Instagram, uh, check us out there. We have a bunch of folks who we're just starting to interact with. And one, and I, I'm going to mispronounce the name because I don't know how you're supposed to, supposed to pronounce this, but Amy Sight. X-A-I-M-I-S-Y-T-E. And I posted a picture, a screen cap from the movie Dune, and uh, she says, he who controls the pumpkin spice. <laughs> so, and I keep telling people there are Dune references in everything. 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 And I said, I replied, I said, these people at Starbucks, they've been here so long. Their teeth, the yellow, within the yellow. <laughs> we finally got our Twitter page back online. Oh, good. 
Not really. What we did was I just took a different Twitter account that I had and I changed the name, <laughs> changed the name of our old one and just tried to reorient there. So we're refollowing everybody and, and getting that uh, back online. But we are thankful for the folks who have caught back up with us. Caleb, who is at Cable Guy, uh, said, just started reading the Stormlight Archive and saw that the D&D podcast is doing it as well. This will be fun. I also read the show notes and saw that the Duchess was reading Warded Man and Spinning Silver, both amazing books. Yes. And the first is an incredible series. I'd love for you to cover them. Warded Man was pretty awesome. We got a couple new reviews on iTunes. Uh, a couple of star ratings and one new review. And I'm not going to try to pronounce this name. It's A-D-W-R-E. Adre? Adre? I don't know. Not. I'm going to mess that up, so I'm going to stop trying. Found out about the pod by looking for more King Killer material. Love the analysis and the comedy provided in the pod and have stuck around for all the episodes. Fantastic. Outstanding. I've read all the material covered in the pod so far, and they have opened my eyes to theories and speculation that I may have missed previously. Now that I am caught up on the pod, I'll take time to read through The Way of Kings with the pod, which will serve as my third read or listen through. As much as I like it now, I think it'll be even better when they start a project I have not read and I can read along. That's a tedious thing to do. God bless you. The Duke and Duchess pod is easily one of the best out there if you're looking to laugh as well as gain insight. Bam, thank you. It's great, isn't it? It's a great review. It was. That was fantastic. So we thank you, and we love getting the reviews on iTunes. Really, we love all of the interaction, and we're getting to an interesting point where when we first started this podcast, we would spell out every online interaction we had because we were just starting out, and if we got two or three comments on Twitter, it was, you know, it was a a special occasion and now the community is building up around this is so much that people are interacting and building friendships apart from us and there's so much going on we couldn't possibly recap it all plus it you know you just come on here and read it yourself you don't want to listen to us read it to you uh, but it's just it's interesting how much that's changed and how much it's grown uh, way beyond what i thought it would have and uh, I'm super grateful. Hey, when we started this, I thought maybe my mom would download it. <laughs> and you know what? She has never downloaded it. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> and I, I am not upset about that. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I'm not upset about that. But it is really exciting to see the community kind of build up. And I just, I love the nerd community. I, I love the, fa- I love fellow fantasy fans and I love how passionate we all are about this this kind of literature and this fa- the Facebook group page obviously we always um mention that that's a place where people can interact and start threads of their own related to the material and to little inside jokes and everything that we all now have from chasm the podcast friend. chasm friend how did I not bring that up <laughs> oh my god that was hilarious oh you have to read that one I'm oh sorry. I'm going to Oh, I I think it got buried. Give me a second. That's why I didn't read it. All right. Andy Keithley said, regarding the Duchess's Wistolo versus Wistio misreading, don't feel bad. 
for the first quarter of the book, I thought I was reading about chasm friends. Chasm friends. <laughs> said, that's not nearly as effective. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if um, Eric remembered our, I, I suspect he did, but I, I don't remember if he remembered our living like Larry comment. Mm-hmm. But he he created a picture of the shattered planes with Larry the lobster in the background, <laughs> you know, smiling and waving at everybody. It was perfect. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and then uh, Dob Bobolina said, I used to live above a cheap cat house called Chasm Friends. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, uh. You guys are funny. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. All right. So are you ready for predictions? Yes. Predict some stuff. Okay, fine. Finally, finally. We get to what this whole damn thing is about an hour and a half later. All right. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't don't even feel that this is real, but I'm going to say it anyway. I feel like this is my, just like those predictions I kept making in... um, the gentleman bastards. We're gonna see Sabatha next chapter. Right. Right. <laughs> I think Kaladin's vision of the Stormfather wasn't real. Okay. I'm not saying whether or not the Stormfather does, doesn't exist, whether it's a real thing. I'm just saying that in that moment, that's not what he saw was not real i think it was a hallucination or something else i don't think it was really a god okay teft is from bovland he's from what bovland bovland bavland i don't know okay but is it bavland i don't know whatever from uh far north in yakoved which is where seth was when he was with that guy who was the gambling guy who got killed by the... Okay, yeah. I think he's from there. Okay. Which is part of the reason why I thought he may have been tied in with the people who captured Seth. Okay. But I think the Pure Lake prediction makes more sense. All right. Shalon killed her dad to protect her brothers. I feel like I've said that before, but I don't think I had actually expressed not as like a prediction predicted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm putting that down there. Uh, the brigands in the alleyway, not the first people that Yasna killed. Okay, and then uh, the invisitors aren't dead; they're the dudes from Pure Lake. I like those predictions. I think the only one that's really kind of a stretch are the one about Teft being from Bavland. and um, the one about the Stormfather not being real. That goes against my general. Generally, I feel I I make a lot of predictions on kind of a meta analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea being that if it shows up in the story at this time, if it shows up in the story as a prophecy, it will bear out mm-hmm. because that's you know ninety nine percent of the time in mm-hmm. books that's the way it goes. On the basis of that, I should be predicting that the Stormfather is real, mm-hmm. but for some reason, I just don't I just don't feel like it is. So I'm going against my normal instinct there. Because if he was real, why would he be hanging out with Kaladin? 
The old sad sack. <laughs> Who wants to hang out with that guy? Mopey Party face. pooper. <laughs> like, you're going to hang out with the Lopin if you're going to hang out with anybody. <laughs> right? Right? I want to hang out with the Lopin. You're going to go spar with Adolin. Anyone with the in their name. Right. Exactly. Knows how to have a good time. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to hang out with the Shinovar before I'm going to hang out with these fucking guys. Right? <laughs> it's crazy. Um, it would not at all surprise me. I tend, I almost think that that was a spren. Okay. Not like a, not like a god. I almost think that what he saw was a spren. Just like that big ass water spren on the other side of the continent that we saw in one of those interludes. Cool prediction. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and write that one down. The I storm think you should fa- write the, that down. The storm father is a spren. Some people have two storm fathers, and that's okay. We don't judge. Please, God, end this. <laughs> You got to do it. I can't. I can't do it. I can't stop. <laughs> Why don't you tell them where they can find us? Oh, thank you. <laughs> you can find us on our website at the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at the D and D Podcast. No, you can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess, or on our Facebook group page at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the D&D group. You can find us on Twitter at the D&D podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David podcast. And on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess podcast as well. If you like what you've heard here, tell somebody. Don't be sitting around on your couch telling nobody, just chuckling to yourself. (laughs) Get out there, man. What are you (laughs) doing with your life? Thanks for your interactions. We appreciate them. Look forward to hearing from you this week. That's all we have. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.